Hi, Internet. My name is Jonathan Matos. And I'm Melissa Matos. Welcome to Unboxing Story, where we explore a narrative from the fringes. Today is our Guillermo del Toro episode. Uh, we really like <laughs> we really like him and his uh, monster movies. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about how he's changed the monster movie genre. But before then, we're going to do a little ad read. See you on the other side of the break. Welcome back. Um... I was enthusiastic. <laughs> well, you know, we don't want our, you know, listeners to fall asleep. Um, Especially not during the spooky episode. Yeah, right. They want them to be on their toes. Creepy, creepy stuff. Watch out. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the uh, first movie Guillermo del Toro um, screen wrote was uh, Kronos, which is funny because growing up. Yeah, wait, that Kronos? No, not that Kronos. I was going to say, I'm like, I know it wasn't that. That was a long time ago. That, that Kronos is spelled K-R-O-N-O-S. And as far as I remember, it was like a square, it's like a rectangular metal box. That was the, do you remember this movie at all? No, I do not remember this movie at all. So two things. One, our father watched monster movies uh, when we were growing up. The cheesier, the better. Yeah, and they were not like Shakespearean level <laughs> things like like you would attribute to Del Toro. They're definitely just for the love of watching a giant ant terrorize a suburban neighborhood and um, see how many uh, you know blondes he can fling. Yes, uh, and and the chips all have a screaming contest, or or the kind of thing where you take bets on who dies first. Mm. Those yeah. kinds of movies. And and there's usually like a uh, scientist who's arguing with the military and saying, Stop, stop shooting, it's not working. And then all the the tanks get overturned and, and um you know, <laughs> if you've seen these, they're all the same. To be fair, some have, have transcended their their you know, King Kong transcended its its origins, uh -huh. I would argue. Okay. Uh there are certain classic ones that have. <laughs> I'm looking at it like <laughs> name one more. <laughs> yeah, there there are ones that are known that that are more commonly known. I don't know if you could make the argument that like if I if I was in a room of of you know teenagers or a room of college students or or, or you know anybody uh, my age or your age, whether you would say like. Um, Hey, does anybody want to watch The Blob? And everybody right, would be like, like yeah, sure. No. But like, there's ones that are more known among the people that like monster movies. Right. They're like seen as, like, you know, they, they spend more time with the the effects and they their characters may or not even be just as, the like, story cooker, is more classic cutter. than just, you know, let's put something in an amazing rubber suit and destroy something. Mm, right. Our, our dad was particularly into watching monsters uh, destroy, you know, village. Like, that's the big thing about Godzilla is that they uh, set up these, like, miniature towns and just let villages the go and through it just and... watched Godzilla make sparks fly and everything like that. Um, and for, for the people that like them, I won't, I won't take it away from you. Um, but it wasn't something that I personally was into. No. But um, there are specific things about Del Toro's career and things that he did to make me interested in these movies and and to me took it away from 
the what was probably in the fifties when your when horror was just kind of it was kind of like in its adolescence. It was trying to find its footing within the movie theater. Like it was the first time you really saw monsters on the big screen. At that time, it was probably terrifying yeah. to, to little kids when they're watching this thing. Like they would sneak to the movie theater and be obsessed with watching the fifty foot woman stomp on cars and stuff like that. Um, it was kind of in this uh, in between period, and so uh, I feel like from the nineties to now, Del Toro has done a lot to to try, kind of make that genre grow up and have like different um, connotations to people than what what the the genre came from so the chronos that he wrote um you have to bear with me a little bit because i I have a couple tabs up here um it was a foreign um production and it, it was kind of not really known in in america um he had two films that he wrote Chronos and Mimic that, you know, if you asked the the random passerby if they had ever seen these things, they'd probably look at you funny. Um, Here we go. So uh, in Chronos, an antique dealer, Jesus Greece, played by Federico Lupi, stumbles across Chronos, a 400-year-old scarab that, when it latches onto him, grants him youth and eternal life. Oh. But also a thirst for blood. Of course. As Jesus enjoys his newfound vitality, he's unaware that a dying old man, the Ter de la Guardia, uh, Claudio Brooke, has sent his nephew, Angel Ron Perlman, to find the scarab and bring it back to him. But Jesus will not give immortality up easily, even risking the life of his orphan granddaughter, Tamaris Shanath. So there you can even see that it's it's much more about the... This, the relationships going on there. Right. That there's the tension comes from this relationship thing, and that's interesting to see that Ron Perlman, um, kind of that's probably the start of their relationship. He would go on to be Hellboy. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me see if this was if this was released here. Um, anyway, that probably takes you well. but um, that uh. I, I hadn't seen that, but it seems like an interesting thing. And, and you can see that it, as we were saying, the it's more like a vampire type thing. Right. Where like, there's this curse and like I, that, that was some of the stuff like a couple episodes ago we did. Um, the, uh, what was it? Um, I'm going to Costello meet, uh, Frankenstein. Frankenstein. And, um, Watching uh, Lon Chaney Jr. in that and in The the Wolf Man, there's that feeling of, like, this thing is, like, torturing me. And that pathos of watching this person deal with this thing that, like, he didn't choose to have to deal with. Right. um, That is much more of of a dramatic thing to me than this big monster. Right. That just happens to be naturally inclined to destroy everything. Um. And no. that's much more what you get from Del Toro stuff. Yes. He gives monsters feelings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, and then Mimic was... Um, my, my phone's not cooperating today. Mimic, Mimic... That was the one with the bugs. 
Right. Yeah. It's it's kind of like uh did you ever see the the, the monkey one where the monkey comes over on a boat and then there's like a it, it, apparently it was big in the night. It was big enough to get referenced on Boy Meets World. Oh. So <laughs> um that one was uh, uh Outbreak? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's what it, the description heard, kind of reminds me of. Heard of it, but I haven't watched it. Uh, when a cockroach spread plague threatens to decimate the child population in New York City, evolutionary biologists Susan Tyler, Mira Servino, and her research associates rig up a species of Judas bugs and introduce them into the environment, where they will mimic the diseased roaches and infiltrate their grubby habitats. So far, so good, until the bugs keep on evolving and learn to mimic their next prey, humans. Wait, so the bugs turn into people? Is that what happens? Apparently. <laughs> I, I do not want to see this. <laughs> so yeah, t- tell me tell me what your what your history is with Del Toro and, and how it situates itself with monster stuff. So I think the first thing I saw was Pan's Labyrinth, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably what he's best known for. Right, which is funny to me because because of how um, dominant comic book stuff is, right? You would think it, it's interesting would be... to me that that most people are just like Pan's Labyrinth is the best thing that Del Toro's yeah. done. Probably mm-hmm. mostly though, because Hellboy is so very weird. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a typical comic book kind of story, mm-hmm. uh, and it is, and it is like the typical sort of Del Toro strange. Mm-hmm. Which I think is what I like. One of the things I like about him is mm-hmm. he's not afraid. He's like Tim Burton. He is not afraid to be weird. Right. In in whatever yeah, he has way a very he needs to be weird. Very style. distinct style. Um, and I think Penn's Labyrinth is one of the better examples of that distinct style. Also, like it's a very like I was trying to figure out the word for it, and I don't I don't want to necessarily say realistic because obviously a lot of the stuff he does is fantastical. I think it's because of how detailed it is. But yeah, it is very very detailed, and you it, can picture these creatures being real creatures <laughs> and being a part of the world, even though you know they aren't. So like Pan's Labyrinth, it goes seamlessly from her experiencing this war in in her home or around her home and right. having to deal with her father being this impetus in this horrible war mm-hmm. to to this weird fantastical labyrinth that's outside of her house mm-hmm. but without it becoming like it doesn't feel cartoonish it doesn't feel fake mm-hmm. in that sense like that creature the whatever it is the, 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 the fawn the fawn is I don't know it just feels like it's really there mm-hmm. it's really creepy so for those who haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth it's 1944 and the allies have invaded Nazi-held Europe. In Spain, a troop of soldiers are sent to a remote forest to flush out the rebels. They are led by Captain Vidal, a murder, a murdering sadist. Well, that's, yeah, a, yeah, that's a good way to he explain it. horrible. And with him are our new wife, Carmen, and her daughter from a previous marriage, 11-year-old Ophelia. Ophelia witnesses her stepfather's sadistic brutality and is drawn into Pan's Labyrinth, a magical world of mythical beings. Right. Um, so, yeah, what, what I had for, for this was how, like you're saying, the Visuals are so like operatic and yeah. big and, and epic, it's beautiful. But the stakes are so real, so personal. Like it's not just like a lot of monster movies. It's very I don't know you against a monster. Like it's just the external conflict happening. Right. Of, like there's this thing and it's trying to take over the world and we need to stop it. Right. Like Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is not a deeply emotional movie, mm. right? 
Right. Like not even the first one, even though the first one was probably mm-hmm. closer to that than other stuff. Right. Jurassic Park was, there are creatures that are trying to eat you and you need to get off the island. Like there was a point to it. There was a bigger point mm-hmm. than that. But that's basically what you're watching. Right. In Del Toro stuff, it's not just, oh, there's ghosts or, oh, there's monsters. It's, there are monsters and this is either symbolizing or bringing out these deeply personal Mm-hmm. relationships and problems like the point right. of Pan's Labyrinth was she hates her father mm-hmm. and and like she is surrounded by this horrible violence mm-hmm. and the only way to protect her younger sibling is to go through this trauma for him right like it it had you know there was a lot more deeper inside stuff going on right than just there's a monster right and and it's it's cool to me that this um that the inner, like, imagination, you could say, or depending on how you interpret right, the, the story, the <laughs> um, it seems like, uh, which, whichever way I guess you interpret it, there's this um, beautiful fairy tale that is um, honoring the level of suffering that this person is going through. Right. It's like a quest type of thing, as opposed to a lot of like you would say modern mythology, you know, comics, movies, and stuff like that, is this kind of power fantasy thing. Right. But giving this character Ophelia this, you know, quest where she's like, at one point she has to go into a tree and there's like bugs crawling all around her and it's muddy and stuff, and then she um, has to deal with this thing that this monster that supposedly eats children and stuff like that, and. Um, dealing with it in the way that, like, say, like, Grimm's fairy tales. Right. There was a way that, that fairy tales were used in order to um, educate children <laughs> in a way that we don't really do right, nowadays. Anymore. And um, actually, I would, I would say most of the stuff he's famous for could be considered a fairy tale more than a horror story necessarily, because fairy right. tales are pretty creepy right. and can be like horror stories, mm-hmm. but they were there, like you're saying, to teach kids a lesson. It's like, you go into the dark woods by yourself, something's going to eat you, so mm. stop being stupid right. and get back here and do what you need to do. Right. Or whatever. the po- You know, there's different points of, of them. But it is this mm. deeper psychological part of, of a human to mm. deal with fairy tales as opposed to just, you know, other horror stuff, which I think, I know you, you've mentioned before, like, zombie stuff is rooted in, like, social commentary. It's more... Mm political or more right. external sorts of things yeah, as opposed when, to... When, when Americans want to get into things like you were saying with Jurassic Park, there is a deeper abstract idea behind it. And so you can kind of feel like the movie is a little bit smarter than it is because it's talking about how chaos erupts, you know, and... And, and you can't control nature and you shouldn't be right. trying to exploit it's, it for your... It's detached. Right. It is an external thing. So with with his stories, he's making it more personal again to for uh, a lot of the more um, you know uh, what would you say um, characters that really have uh, that really have a challenge that they have to overcome. Right, they actually have like a personal thing quest. I think is a good word. Right, that they have to do to overcome something personal too. It's not just this, you know big huge force outside of them right. it's there's something inside themselves that they have to prove before they can succeed mm-hmm. um so then uh 
to go to Hellboy, what what I like about uh, those stories because it's it's an adaptation of um, Mike Mignola's uh, comics that that were published through uh, Dark Horse. Um, and for those unfamiliar, it's at the end of World War II, the Nazis attempt to open a portal to a par- paranormal dimension in order to defeat the Allies, but are only able to summon a baby demon who is rescued by Allied forces and dubbed Hellboy, uh, played by Von Perlman. Um, Sixty years later, um, Hellboy serves as an agent to the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense, where he, aided by Abe Sapien, a merman with psychic powers, and Liz Sherman, played by Selma Blair, uh, a woman with pyrokinesis protects America against dark forces. So one thing that's so interesting to me about this is that most people I know that like Mike Mignola's comics really like the movies. And so often it's so hard to please those fans of the work because they're so much invested in these like treasured details. But what's interesting is that he brings so much of his style to these movies and doesn't seem to sacrifice any of his flair for, you know, design with like the creatures and everything. Um, but you, and you, but you get this personal attachment to these characters. Um, and I, I said, what I like about Hellboy is that it's a simple character who is put in these extraordinary uh, situations. So like, there's really nothing. Uh, I, I guess you wouldn't say nothing special, but, um, I, but it I always feels it feels so like I haven't even really watched all of them. I just wanted to see the part with the cherubim because I think it's interesting that you would actually include something mm-hmm. like that in a story because it's not really one of the more well known mm-hmm. biblical things, right? And to try and do it as accurately as he did things, like mm-hmm. you come in and you know what that thing is, and it's weird and creepy, and mm-hmm. like, why are we talking to this thing? Mm-hmm. But, like, it doesn't feel like a Marvel movie does, mm-hmm. where everything is, like, not comic comic booky, but it's more, you know, super. It's mm-hmm. very adventure and... and, mm-hmm. and like, right, and even with Marvel, when when they, they do have a, a feel for um, the characters and these basic elements to them, but uh, when you get into the Del Toro's uh, vision of these different things, it's... Uh, less whimsical but it's still he's not going for like what you would see in um other kind of like action horror stuff where uh it seems to sacrifice the stakes because um some of some of them just seem like they're going for like the lowest common denominator right they want to gross you out or they want to make you uncomfortable the easiest way possible. Right. As opposed to his stuff where it's like, no, if it's not just going to be creepy. It earns. Right. That. It earns being creepy. It's not just, Oh, this thing is weird looking. Or, oh, this thing is trying to fight somebody. Mm-hmm. It's no, there's something more going on here. Right. And... Like with the, with the, you're saying with the cherubim, having that be as accurately depicted at it in his style, yeah. obviously it's not trying to, um, necessarily honor the source material but um the the idea of depicting it in such a way where just the nature of the creature is what makes it creepy and unsettling right um that that goes a long way as opposed to just having you know something with like like for example uh how shredder is in teenage mutant ninja turtles like the new one 
they just gave him more spikes. <laughs> Literally, Let's like make him that's his whole character was they made <laughs> him have, like no, more like a transformer more spikes. and that it was never what made that character creepy. The character is creepy because he uh, killed the master of Shredder and like there's this personal drama that as corny as the old uh, live action movies are, you get you know, how personal the vendetta is between those characters and despite the absurdity of the you know, source material and how it's like basically parody that character is intimidating because they have, they took the time to dramatically write this scene between the turtles and them and they're trying to protect their father Um, and that's kind of the the how they make Hellboy um, interesting and really this the emotional core of that movie is his love for Liz and how Liz feels misunderstood because all of her life she's been you know taken in and out of foster homes and and she's kind of like a black sheep in the department and you know he just really likes her and he wants to protect her and so that even though he is you know eight feet tall and has stubby horns <laughs> yeah. and, and a and a five ton fist like it's this really cool thing and and i think that that's um something that he uh went on to do with some of his other movies is no matter what you look like there's this as long as you're a good person right you know you could be this weird creepy creature but that's not Right. It's not your fault that you look like a monster. And most of the evil people are the humans. Right. In his story. Like in Pan's Labyrinth, the father was like the most terrifying person in that right. story. And the, even creepier than the fawn, which is, you know, eating babies. But the <laughs> father is right. this like mm-hmm. hard nosed, I'm just going to kill you right now because I don't care kind of person. And you're like, this is messed up. Um, so uh, he, I thought you would like to hear that. He made a movie. Uh, so af- after that, he did Hellboy Two, Golden Army. We kind of covered a little bit of that. Uh, he he did very good in in continuing from one to the other. A lot of um, like, for example, with like the Spider Man series, one and two were pretty good. The third one, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so uh, I think he did pretty good keeping the quality from the first one, the second one. Um, but then he did Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which is apparently a fairy horror movie. So um, fairy <laughs> what? It's a fairy horror movie. Fairy horror movie? Yeah, and I'd never heard about this until I was doing research for this movie. So I'm going to pull up the description of that. Um, but that's at, like kind of what you were bringing up. His love for mythology is mm-hmm. another thing that makes me like his movies. Because rather than just doing a one-off and saying, like, I, I want to do... You know, vampires. Like, for example, um, the Wachowski siblings. It seems like they have kind of this, like, hobby horses that they jump to and fro from. But with each one of them, with each one of Del Toro's movies, it seems like he really takes the time to pay tribute and homage to where these stories come from Mm -hmm. and making it so that you really feel like he knows what he's doing when he's doing like a fawn or doing um a cherubim or something like that like uh and it, it's it's it makes it more interesting because it's not just this version of this thing that he's like i'm gonna make a fawn creepy 
Right. And that's all that I'm doing with this character. Yeah. It's making a fawn the way that fawns are. Ought to be, which was creepy enough. <laughs> right. Which is like, even creepier why, than what Why is this thing anyway? coming to children and making deals with them? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, um, that it's kind of what makes his stuff interesting to me. And, and it flies in the face of most other horror stuff where the, the idea is just to creep you out with this, this creature. Uh, but don't be afraid of the dark. Lonely and introverted, young Sally... Bailey Madison has just arrived at the 19th century mansion that her father, Guy Pierce, and his girlfriend, Katie Holmes, are restoring. Um, while exploring the sprawling estate, Sally discovers a hidden, long undisturbed basement. Unwittingly, she unleashes a race of malevolent, dark dwelling creatures who intend to drag her and her family down into the mansion's bottomless depths. Oh, a remake of a 1973 made for TV movie. Oh. So, if that doesn't prove to you that he's like, Wait, okay, somebody did this. I like that. I don't really like that. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Better. So I'm excited to maybe watch that. Yeah, we should watch that. All right, so now we get to The Hobbit. And uh, I recently watched uh, Lindsay Ellis's YouTube mini doc (laughs) that she did on this because um, she was a big fan of the initial Lord of the Rings series, not as big a fan of The Hobbit. So what she did was she tried to. Most of us. Yeah. She tried to figure out why is it. The way that it is. Um, so apparently, as far as Del Toro is concerned, if you want to see more about the making of the film, you can uh, look her up on YouTube. Um, MGM was nearly $4 million in debt after a merger with New Line. And so they started production on a Del Toro-led Hobbit. Uh, he was excited to do a fairy tale unencumbered by the studio committee. And he said there should so be... I'm pretty a- sure his version of Riddles in the Dark would have been awesome. <laughs> um, and he, the way that he put it was that, like, uh, he thought since it was based on this thing and they had done a pretty good job of Lord of the Rings, he's quoted as saying there should be, like, uh, he's used to producers saying, oh, there should be a happy ending here and they should never go see the spiders, but he was expecting that they wouldn't be that heavy-handed with it. But after he spent a year and a half working on it, um, he left in 2009 and apparently there was a lot of people that were kind of saying that there were, like, scheduling conflicts and stuff. But the, the idea, I think, because they were so in debt, was that they didn't want to do his version of it. Um, and they, they it kind of led to Peter Jackson um, like getting foisted into it, even though he didn't really want to do it. And uh, it's really sad because later on, Del Toro said he compares the experience to being recently widowed and people keep asking you how your wife died. <laughs> so he was really passionate to do it. He yeah. wanted to do it like uh, what we're saying his style is. He wanted to do it like a fairy tale. Which it um, is. I mean, and it would have been brilliant. Right. But that's that's kind of why he's he's listed as a screenwriter because a lot of, when, when you're that deep into a production and people want to save money, they'd rather credit you than act like you didn't have anything right. to do with it. Right. Um, and I mean, you can still see some of it. I can't say that he that Peter Jackson totally, you know, totally murdered the Hobbit. Mm-hmm. There was some stuff that yeah, he's still he's still an amazing director. Yeah. So even though it it wasn't nearly as good as Lord of the Rings, I think you can tell that there was like I think a lot um, of the stuff with the with the dragon tempting the dwarf and stuff mm-hmm. might have been. I don't know which one, which person was responsible for it, but I thought that was pretty deep and nice. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, some of that stuff. But then the, there was a lot of over-the-top weird monster things that just kind of mm-hmm. didn't need to be there. Right. And 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 what he's talking about with uh, production interference, I've seen it has been something that has come up with things like Star Wars. Like, for example, Ron Howard took Solo away from uh, Chris Lord and Phil Miller. I, I, those are hard to keep track of, but they... they uh, they were the people that did the Lego movie, and I think they were trying to make more of a comedy. And so Star Wars is Star Wars. You yeah. don't mess with Star Wars. Right. So Disney was like, yeah, no. we're going to have Ron Howard fix the kind Whatever of stuff you that you <laughs> took away from uh, their brand and wanted to make. This is a Star Wars movie, and um, that, that kind of stuff happens because these things are so valued uh, among fans and things like that. So. It's, it's understandable from the business perspective of things, but sometimes it does take away from people who have such real distinctive voices, right. like Del Toro, who want to do their version that, that might, you know, pay homage more to the uh, mythology where that comes from, or like we were saying, he does like to actually creep you out. <laughs> right. And so if they don't want it to be scary because they want money from the younger demographics, they might do things like that. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, he's, he's credited with those, but there's no way of knowing really uh, what, much his... of what he was working on originally survived, right? Um, now, uh, 2013, we saw Pacific Rim, and uh, that to me is much more in the lines of like this is a blockbuster action, but even that movie. surprised me because so the whole idea, the whole concept, the only way this month, this giant robot that's there to fight the monsters. Mm. The only way it works is if you are willing to share your brain with the other pilot in uh-huh. your suit is a huge deal. Mm. Like that's like on the edge, uh, speculative science fiction level crap. Mm. Like that's not just, Oh yeah. It's, it's definitely not like uh, basic in any way. Right. You know what I mean? And, and then, the, but I think, but still also giant robots and monsters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause that's the thing is that it, it's, certainly made for the people that are just like, okay, you guys want a big uh, action uh, robots fighting monsters thing. Kaiju and, and this is the way that I do it. <laughs> right. Here's how and, it works. Uh, the, the plots of how um, like the scientists are using the brain to try to um, you know uh, get this, you know, fix this portal and everything is much more like sophisticated than maybe what you would see in in like a 50s thing and like you're saying there is an emotional core to it that uh harkens to uh his other stuff because um let me see if it's detailed in the, in the synopsis here long ago legions of monstrous creatures called kaiju which is the japanese word for these types of monsters um arose from the sea bringing with them all consuming war to fight the kaiju mankind developed giant robots called jaegers designed to be piloted by two humans locked together in a neural bridge. However, even the Jaegers are not enough to defeat the kaiju, and humanity is on the verge of defeat. Mankind's last hope now lies with washed-up ex-pilot Charlie Hunnam and an, an, an untested trainee, Reiko Kikuchi, <laughs> and an old, obsolete Jaeger. So there's those tropes of, like, this is, uh, you know, this guy that was um, washed up right. and coming back and doing and one last job. Hothead or whatever. Um, but it, it's, I think what se- separates this one is 
I think that there are filmmakers who aren't aware when they're playing into tropes, and there are ones that are just not putting any effort into it. Right. And there's like, oh, this is I've seen this movie before. They do do do. They write up. And, and this happens. You know. and then we go. Um, but he he I think took a little bit more effort, like you're saying, coming up with more inventive sci-fi elements. Um, so the, keeping the, that style that right. people are used to with the monster design, with the Jaeger designs, and um, and I think it's 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 funny in a way that some of these other ones aren't like the jokes don't really land as as well. Right. Um, Ron Perlman's in it as this kind of monster black market the, yeah, yeah, yeah. guy and Sells um, monster parts. Charlie Day and I forget what the, what the other scientist uh, name is, but. Um, they're kind of like these uh, Abbott and Costello type yeah, uh, scientists that are really that are really funny. And um, I liked the girl because her story was cool too. So there's the two guys that have to work together, and then there's this girl who isn't it because like wasn't her father killed or something by the kaiju? Yeah. And they have that beautiful like flashback scene of her as a little kid. This is really nice stuff. Right. Like, well, that that shows you how like it's a nice visual waves of showing you uh because that i mean i don't know how we got this performance out of this little girl yeah but when she sees idris elba coming out of the smoke in his big robot suit you're just like this guy means everything to her yeah. because there were monsters about to gobble her up yeah. and then he came, and he came in and beat the crap out of them and now here she is um and and that's uh it's interesting because it's such a uh, machismo movie, but showing you these characters who are uh, really invested in doing this the right way and stuff like that, it doesn't come across like a like a Transformers movie right. where there's a bunch of guys that are just yelling at each other and right. you know punching their way to a solution. There's much more. Uh, it's much more smart than that, and I think we'd be better for more action action kaiju. Robot movies from him. I haven't seen the second one yet. We should watch the second. Yeah, neither have I. So that also would that's also on the list. If by the way, if we reference the hat, <clears throat> we have another podcast called Random Media Minicast. I almost, I almost didn't do it. <laughs> Melissa has some trouble saying that. Can't name. say the name at all <laughs> ever. But that's on our Patreon at Patreon.com/slash Thing Outside the Box. If you want to pledge a dollar, you can get access to that where we pull random books, uh, short stories. Uh, media of any kind from a hat and then try it out, see how we like it. So, uh, so far we have Don't Look, I was going to say Don't Look Under the Bed, that's not... Yes. No, it's Don't Be Afraid of the, uh, the Dark. No, we didn't do that one. We did Don't Look Under the Bed. Oh, the way that we're adding to the list. Yes. For the hat. Yes. Sorry, I got confused. I, I we, have, was... we have a mini podcast up about Don't Look Under the Bed. Yes. That... We that did. is currently I was, available. I was confused doubly because <laughs> Don't Be Afraid of the Dark was a 90s uh, horror anthology series yes. for children that was on Nickelodeon. and That's why I thought that I, seen. I knew that, we that didn't I do. Seen, but, no. <laughs> but um, yes, so we, we will. Is Eureka in that? Eureka should be in that. This Random is a, thought. This is a Pope production. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, next we have The Strain, which was a. I, I, but I put that it came out in 2014. 20, so I traveled to wow. the future and he's and saw this movie. still alive and making great content. Of course he is, because um, it's still Toro. He can produce as a ghost. He made a deal with some uh, hell beast. And if anybody's going to be able to direct as a ghost, it'll be him. 
Just saying. <laughs> um, so the strain was uh, based on a novel series, actually, that he started. Um, he wrote he, novels. He co-wrote. Too? Yeah, he co-wrote. Um, uh, well, that, that there was another thing that he co-wrote. Turns out it was uh, based on his movie. Don't be afraid of the dark. He did a thing about fairies, and that's how I knew it was a fairy thing. I didn't look at the synopsis, but apparently he was like, "Here's a guide to uh, <laughs> guide to scary, scary fairies," because most um, of them are. But the strain. Uh, was a series that was on FX from uh, 2014 to 2017. And I thought it had some, like, interesting ideas, um, but it was kind of convoluted, which is a uh, thing that you get with some sci-fi things. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing with, with TV productions. It's hard to know how much creative input they have and what restraints there might be on a series that wouldn't be on a movie. Um, but the synopsis is Dr. Ephraim Goodweather, which is played by Corey Stoll, who... We mentioned uh, was Hemingway in Midnight in Paris. Uh, the head of uh, CDC's New York-based Canary Project is called upon to investigate when an airplane lands with everybody on board dead. What his team discovers is a viral outbreak that has similarities to an ancient strain of vampirism. As this virus begins to spread, Goodweather works with his team and a group of the city's residents to wage war that could, that could hold humanity's fate in, in its hand. So, um, because it's a book series, it sets up like different like factions. So there's somebody that uh, is like this ancient type of vampire thing, and then there's like a burly exterminator guy who knows like the sewer systems, and that's how he's like contributing to this team. There's like all these different players in it, and um, what, what I liked about it was that there was this kind of throwbacks in, in with the, the guy that's like, yo, these are vampires. Like, trust me. Um, <laughs> who, uh, apparently knew these things from, um, their roots in, in like World War II. And so there was this association with Nazis and, um, that type of thing. But it was kind of weird because there was another theme in it that was more about, how when you became a vampire, you would instantly uh, be it, be like, uh, like going after the one that you cared most about. So it was kind of weird in, in how part of it was like kind of a rote uh, horror action thing. Part of it was more like um, uh, emotional based drama stuff. Um, and it was kind of like uh, a little all over the place with what it was doing. So I think probably the best thing to do would be to pick up the, the novel series if you're interested in this kind of thing and Del Toro's take on vampires. Um, and um, also if you want to see Sean Bean, the uh, undercover bad guy, because that Ooh. happens in, in it uh, if you want to check it out. So then he doesn't have to die as soon. No comment. Um, <laughs> Uh, so uh, there's a cartoon series that apparently he co-created called Troll Hunters Tales of Arcadia that's on Netflix now if you want to check that out as well. I haven't seen any of it. Um, but uh, the last one on his list, which got him an Oscar, was Shape of Water, um, which was much more like socially minded than I expected it to be because it's um, uh, basically Minnie from uh, The Help is... <laughs> the best friend of this this mute well 
I mean, let me allow Wikipedia to do the synopsizing here because I'm kind of go, going from the back to the front here. Um, but uh, it, it's it's interesting him doing this monster thing, bringing it to this kind of social idea because that uh, that theme that has been through his stuff of being different and that not being um, what should define you, I guess, now co- comes forward and takes like a front seat, basically. Uh, Eliza is a mute, isolated woman who works as a cleaning lady in a hidden high-security government laboratory in 1962, Baltimore. Her life changes forever when she discovers the lab's classified secret, a mysterious, scaled creature from South America that lives in a water tank. As Eliza develops a unique bond with her new friend, she soon learns that its fate and very survival lies in the hands of a hostile government agent and marine biologist. Um, so uh, Michael Shannon plays the Strickland, the agent, and it's pretty obviously like, uh, you know, trying to talk about things that like, because she she has a um, uh, a gay friend, Richard Jen- Jenkins, that lives in her building. Um, Octavia Spencer plays Zelda, who is her um, friend that works with her in the facility. So it's it's very heavy, like, social justice themes. Um, but it's using that metaphor of, like, this misunderstood monster to make that point. And I think he does a good job in terms of ma- still making it emotionally resonant, even though, um, like, you can kind of tell what he's doing the whole time, you know. Um, and... I think that some people are going to be freaked out that it's like she's starting this romantic relationship with a fish. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I know it certainly wasn't easy uh, to like, you know, I was like but sitting there waiting for somebody. It's an intelligent like, creature, right? Like it's not like it's a. But like he doesn't talk and like, I, you know, I could, I could have a drink with uh, what's his name? The fish from Hellboy. Like he was a, more like a person. But this, I mean, it looks like a fish. He, oh. He's like, he's not really, but um, the, the idea is more that he is, because the way that, um, the way that it's framed is um, Giles, who is her artist friend that she lives with, um, he frames it kind of like a prince and a princess thing, and that, like, this prince is coming and rescuing her and stuff. And so um, he has these like healing powers and things like that. So he's not a regular, as much as you could be a regular fish man. <laughs> he's not your average. He's not fish your man. average fish man. Uh, Cause he's like, like lady of the water level fish man. Right. Okay. Cause like what, what you, what is often done with this story is kind of like the Frankenstein model of like, this thing is so misunderstood that it eventually it rages against the machine. Right. And <laughs> like, you know, takes people out with him. And, and this does a more cathartic turn with it, where it, it's not like he's pressured into becoming a monster. It's more about showing the humanity of, of the people that she knows and uh, herself as somebody with a disability, showing their humanity and having this kind of like nice romantic movie. But I, as with feel, most of his did things, did it feel very Beauty and the Beast at all, or was it because it is a common right, that fairy tale sort of trope thing mm-hmm. to have the the misunderstood monster ish mm-hmm. 
person. But but I think of everything of all the things that he's done, it surprises me that like I assumed he had his fans, but uh, this is the type of thing that I wouldn't have bet would be so would big. Be, like, yes, this is hugely popular. Thing. Right, something to win Academy Award, something to uh, put like these different actors to the forefront of the their respective categories and things. Um, it, you know, and and it's a credit to him as a director to be able to get those performances out of them and not have this get written off as like, oh, is the guy dude Hellboy? That's good for you. <laughs> like, it, it is something that that um, people recognized for uh, the skill that he was able to get out of it. Um, so as with all of his stuff, it's not for everyone, but I, I do like how, um, he uses this genre in order to tell his versions of these stories. Right. It's not, it, it shows you how, as a screenwriter, he's able to draw like one thing, um, when we can get to Crimson Peak, um, one thing that I liked about that story was that there are different, um, dramatic moments that even even in this kind of stylized gothic world um he was able to um make some kind of naturalistic choices so like for example the main character's father passes away and so she's like like not able to speak like she he's talking like he's still alive yeah. and stuff like that and that's the type of thing that like it, he's not trying to write um, gone with the wind, right. like where everything's elevated and right. grand and everything. He's taking those moments to show this character's suffering. Um, so the synopsis goes, after marrying the charming and seductive Sir Thomas Sharp, young Edith, played by Mia Wasakowska, uh, finds herself swept away <laughs> to his remote Gothic mansion in the English hills. Also living there is Lady Lucille, Thomas' alluring sister and protector of her family's dark secrets. Able to communicate with the dead, Edith, Edith tries to decipher the mystery behind the ghostly visions that haunt her new home. As she comes closer to the truth, Edith may learn that true monsters are made of flesh and blood. Right. So again, it's back to the, yes, there are ghosts and there are creepy things in this house, but the things that are really trying to hurt you are the regular people. Right. And and, uh, and the dog did not die. <laughs> yes. Nice. We that were was expecting so the dog to die. Because that's always such a that's another kind of cheap thing that horror directors yeah. do. That's usually so. The the nice thing about Del Toro is he does not do cheap horror things. Mm -hmm. He does not do cheap jump scares. Although that one had a few jump scares in it, but he doesn't do the typical like that's mostly what this movie is is jump scares. No, right. He doesn't do that kind of stuff. He doesn't do the the cheap like we're gonna watch the dog die some horrible way because mm -hmm. that's just why the dog right. is in the movie. Like it wasn't the point. Mm -hmm. Um. And I think that the like we were discussing earlier, comedy and horror both have that thing of well, it gets you to react because something's unexpected. Right. So somebody who doesn't understand horror would think, well, we'll do that thing I saw in that movie once, and that'll be creepy. No, it's not. Well, if you do something unexpected, right. that's far creepier than doing something that everybody sees coming from yeah. a mile away. Um, so that's uh, another aspect of his, of his stuff. And um, I liked that the... So, when I first saw the creepy things in the house, mm -hmm. I was thinking, oh, he's being chintzy because they're all bloody. And they're not red because they're bloody. They're red because they were buried in red clay for their entire death. Mm -hmm. right. Like, there were reasons for everything 
right. that were shown to you. It I wrote wasn't that just... down because I was thinking so many ghost stories I've heard complaints about them because there's no rules. Right. This thing can do whatever it wants at any time. Right. And there's no kind of there's no limits on mythology the or, or lore to this creature right. to make some of the things that you see that are unnatural understandable. And so that's another thing that when you see these things drenched in red, you can trust that Del Toro has a, has reason. a reason for why they're drenched in red. And it makes why they're showing up in the locations in the house that they are. Mm-hmm. Why yeah, all of that had reasoning behind it. It wasn't just, oh, ghosts are going to pop up. Right. Um, it's why I liked the Haunting at Hill House that mm-hmm. we just recently watched. There were definite rules to the ways those ghosts work and why they were doing what they were doing mm-hmm. and why the house was doing what it was doing. Like, the house was a force in that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Crimson Peak, also, the house had a lot of character. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it was this big, broken, decaying house... Mm-hmm. It was almost like fall of the house of Usherish. Like there was reasons why mm. they, the, the the problems that the family had were making the house fall apart. Right. Yeah, I was going to say that that there was there's a beauty to his um, the 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 decay. There's a beauty to the decay of this house. And unlike something like I was thinking a lot of the Phantom of the Opera adaptation, the most recent one, because a lot of that was focused on spectacle. Right. And what what's I like about Del Toro is that he spends a lot of time uh, creating this big production and having like all this detail, but none of it is. It feels very um, tight in terms of everything that you see um, has to do with how he's telling the story. Yeah, and it's not focused on like a magic trick where he's distracting you by all these different, you know. Uh, uh, these sets and these costumes and stuff like that. Everything is trying to show you that like this person is like, she says he's kind of well-dressed, but then later on she's talking about how his shoes were worn and things like that. She noticed. Um, and it it's, makes it much more interesting that you're, you're getting to know these specific characters and their belongings and the things that they're using are ways to show their character, not just, you know, ways to show off that they had all this money for this big right. production. Um, but you did say that you liked, I broke down, that you said that you did like the costumes and everything. Oh, very much. Like, the set and the costumes robes. were perfect. Oh, we were. The woman had like five different house robes and they all looked more fantastic than her dresses. It was ridiculous. Right. It was like, I just want all the robes. <laughs> but I also put that, that I loved, I loved, um, uh, Tom Hiddleston, who played Sharp, I loved his candle move. I oh, yeah, that yeah, really, that was pretty like, cool. cool. Um, I put the butterfly metaphor is creepy, not scary. <laughs> yes. Because the, that that's um, a, a cool thing that it did was that it did plant some foreshadowing, um, and it makes you uneasy, but you do kind of see logical reasons why this character is trusting these people. She sees that this guy has these big dreams and it, it attracts him, her to him. Um, and uh, there's different things that like, you can see pretty obviously that she wants to save him. She wants to be his, um, you know, be there for him. Right. And in help, a way him, that, help his dreams come true. Cause he just needs the funding. And if he just had the funding, it would be great. Right. Um, 
And then she, the the more that she learns about Lucille, she's like, okay, I need to find out what's happening yeah, here. Yeah, there's something creepy going on in this house. Um, and you do get human moments with her too, and I like that about his uh, villains is that there's a logical reason why they're doing what they're doing, even if that reason is screwed up. Um, he he was showing you how uh, they had a mother who was very controlling, pretty obviously, and. Um, you know, she feels like Thomas is, is hers and all of her bitterness comes from this jealousy that she feels. Um, so, and, and you find out later that there's other, you know, reasons. Other stranger things happening. Right. So, uh, I, I, I think that with his other things, I, I guess just because really they're just more the types of stories that I enjoy. Um, you know, I, I really like, uh, Hellboy and and uh, I really like more classic fairy tales. Gothic stuff is not necessarily the thing that I leap for in terms of genre, but I think for what it is, it was really good. And and it's even and I, if, I like gothic horror a lot. If I have to pick up horror genre, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's either gothic horror or real ghost stories mm-hmm. because ghost stories are very deeply. By real ghost stories, do you mean like where they go in with the the green light and no. <laughs> Those guys are pathetic. Okay, <laughs> agreed. What you mean is like a, a story where the ghost is like it means something. That it means something that there was a ghost there. Yeah. It's not just oh, we're gonna have like you know random creepy stuff happening. Mm-hmm. No. Or like it seems like with paranormal activity, the idea was let's create this because um, like later on, like there was a quote-unquote mythology, but it seemed like it was pretty cynically just like, let's just keep adding things so that we can keep making movies, not necessarily that there's a real good reason right. or a real thought-through reason why this activity is Which, happening. you know, so like, yeah. So, I don't know. Well, Pan's Labyrinth isn't really gothic. Pan's Labyrinth is half magical realism, really, mm-hmm. and yeah. half fairy tale. And then... Then he does some gothic stuff. Shout out to stuff that he's produced. Mm-hmm. Like I like the orphanage mm-hmm. and other things that he's had a hand in, even though he didn't necessarily write them, but you can tell that his influence is in them. Mm-hmm. Where it's literally... Yeah, he did another one called Mama. Right. That was also... A, a, They're just like ghost stories that make you cry story. at the end. That's how well emotionally done they were. Right. It's not just about scaring you. Right. Yeah, it's it definitely, you can tell... Um, his his hand uh, was steering them towards something that was in line with his taste and his sensibility right. and um, certainly like uh, allows them to have their own uh, visual styles expressed in it um, but uh, really is in line with like having an emotional core to a horror movie um, so by all means peruse these movies and uh, educate yourself um Thanks, thanks for listening. Yep. Uh, if you want to write to us, you can reach us at unboxingstorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find or, us on social media mm-hmm. at Unboxing Story, either on Facebook or Twitter. Yes. And uh, happy, happy, happy heart hauntings. Holidays. Happy holidays. Happy haunting days. Happy haunting days. Okay. <laughs> good night and good luck. Good night.